is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history. And on this day in history, the founder of the Philadelphia Flyers was born. And last year, we did a celebration of his life story on the 50th anniversary of the team's history. When we talk about the Philadelphia Flyers, we're always talking about really, well, the real name of the team, the Broad Street Bullies. In any great drama, you need heroes and villains. The Flyers are both. Here we go. Oh, now they got the hand This is going to be a wild show. Talk about blood being spilled. Actual blood. Here's Jones It's a badge of honor to be a goon. We loved to be hated. They were despicable. A disgrace to hockey. We don't have to apologize to nobody. They were our guys. This team unified a city. This day in history, this whole year really, an entire city celebrates this 50th anniversary. In February 1966, the city of brotherly love was awarded its soon-to-be-revered NHL team, the Philadelphia Flyers. The orange and the black, the team's colors. Since their inaugural season, the Flyers have posted the third highest winning average in the NHL have won two Stanley Cups, and have been to the finals more than all but two other teams. And none of this story would have happened without another story, without one man. You might say they are two sides of the same puck. This man's story began with yet another story. The story of his father, only five years old, and his grandfather immigrated to the United States from Russia. His family's American dream story began with a fruit cart, a single fruit cart his grandfather pushed about in the heartland of America, Kansas City, Missouri. By the 1930s, his father had grown up and grown to own a grocery store in Washington, D.C. One at first, then two. And one of those stores is where this man, this story, would grow up. They lived above the shop, a common story of immigrant entrepreneurs and their families. And the young boy's name? Ed Snyder. I was the only Jewish kid in a very tough neighborhood, and I had to fight my way through it. The first few times I got beat up after that, I was pretty good. I maybe broke. 15, 20 noses. Down deep, I think my dad was proud. (laughs) I moved to a nice neighborhood, and my career was over, thank God. 
Life was by no means dreamy for the Snyders. Ed acutely remembers seeing his father try and fail, try and fail, and try and fail with each new business adventure. But each time, his father would get back up. A real fighter, an example, a trait that Ed would learn from. Finally, his father's hard work paid off, and in collaboration with other store owners, they became a chain of grocery stores, a hard-won American dream. Ed, though, wasn't satisfied merely living his father's dream. Ed wanted to build something of his own. So he went to college, studied accounting, and then went to work as one. Although not for as long as you might think, especially after all of that college investment. And everyone said, well, you have to work as an accountant. <laughs> so I got a job. My boss sent me to Kensington Esso. Um, I was scratching the grease off the books. By the end of the year, I saw that he had made $25,000. I was making $5,000. So I said to my boss, I said, when do you think I'll make $25,000? He said, well, if you work hard in five years, I'll bet you'll be making $25,000. I said, I quit. Not knowing what to do next, Ed went back to his father's chain and got a job working at the store, as many of the sons of their owners had done. But unlike the other sons, Ed said to his boss, who was one of the other owners, I need a raise. And the guy scoffed. Well, that wouldn't be fair. You'd be paid more than the other sons. Ed was disgusted. So my career depends upon theirs. I quit. Now with a family of his own, a family to support, Ed began selling records. Vinyls, out of the back seat of his car. First to the grocery stores he used to work in, then to pharmacies, then to big box stores. Then across state lines, then across the Mississippi, and then across the country. And suddenly, just like that, he was done. He sold his business. He quit for a third time. Ed had found jobs, but he had yet to find his calling. He kept searching, figuring it had to come to him one day. And that day came, and of all places, in Madison Square Garden in New York. One thing you can't accuse the Ranger fans of being frontrunners. A friend of mine and I were having a drink in New York City, and he said, look, I got an extra ticket. You know, to the garden tonight, uh, the Rangers are playing Montreal. And I said, what's that all about? And he said, well, it, it's the National Hockey League. Would you like to go with me? And I said, yeah, I'll go. And I said, you know, I didn't have anything else to do that night. So we went to the old garden and I fell in love with the game instantaneously. It was without question the greatest spectator sport I had ever seen. What a story. Ed Snyder. The founder of the Philadelphia Flyers, born on this day in history, and we continue with his life story after these short messages. Habib and this is Our American Stories. This day in history brought to you as always 
by Hillsdale College. And we learned in that first segment about a man and about a hockey team and the inseparable bond between the two. Ed Snyder had wandered up to the old Madison Square Garden. There is nothing still, I think, like going to Madison Square Garden and seeing a hockey game, the nature of that arena. Well, this was the old one, and he was suddenly intoxicated with his sport. And we pick up the story of Ed Snyder and the Philadelphia Flyers right here. Shortly afterward, the NHL announced it would expand the league by six teams. And just like that, Ed's calling hit him a hockey team in Philadelphia. Ed joined forces with Jerry Woolman, a fellow co-owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, and the pair jumped in the fray to bring yet another major sports team to their town. The rules were simple. You had to have an arena and pay $2 million cash or no franchise. Ed and Jerry got to work building the arena. It would be called the Spectrum, and seat more than 17,000. But no one knew if the new team could even fill 1,700 seats. The last hockey team in Philadelphia, the Quakers, had died over 30 years ago, and no one had high hopes for a new team. But they did. Now with the $12 million spectrum on its way to completion, all that was needed was the $2 million deposit cash on the spot. I learned that the league was expanding and I felt that Philadelphia would be a great place for one of the expansion teams. And they had these grand plans. They were going to build this new building, the Spectrum. We all laughed at them. Who are these guys? Not one of them. I think had really ever been in a hockey rink in their entire life. A bunch of business guys from Philadelphia. We went around to the various banks and they were totally disinterested. What is it, soccer? And we said, no, it's hockey. And they said, well, hockey will never go over in Philadelphia. Another sort of fell asleep during our presentation. But the last bank we went to, Gerard Trust, fortunately the vice president, had played hockey at Harvard and loved hockey and had a lot of faith in what we were doing, and we got the loan. Unfortunately, Philadelphians weren't the only ones souring on the idea of a hockey team. And Ed's business partner... Jerry Woolman soon broke paths with him, just as the $2 million was coming due. Weeks went by as Ed tried to raise the money on his own. Then days, and then hours. I was in Philly because I was scrambling till the last day to raise that $2 million. We had to wire the money to Montreal. And on that day that we had to wire the money, It was the only blackout in the history of Philadelphia that I recall. We couldn't wire the money. Our banker called a friend, another banker in New York, and on his word, wired the money from New York to Montreal. I was 33. I was scared to death. But the money came through. So basically, we had to build an arena, quick. Actually, from the time I had the idea to the time the spectrum was built was 16 months. The construction period was 11 months. And we got it done in time. Ed in Philadelphia got their team, the Philadelphia Flyers. Wake up, Philadelphia, and let me hear you sing. The orange and the black, the orange and the black. Though the team's colors were orange and black, 
it sure seemed green at the beginning. My first exposure to Philadelphia was at an Eagles football game. And they introduced a guy on the starting defensive team. I swear to God, all 50,000 stood up and booed. And I said to the people that were there with us, what in God's name did this guy do last week to deserve it? And apparently he had a, a bad game, and I thought to myself, oh my God, what are we getting ourselves into here? People didn't know what hockey was. People had no idea what this sport skates. They had a reception at City Hall for them, and they put them in open convertibles for a ride down Broad Street. There were no more than 20 people on the parade route. People were wondering who in the heck we were and what was going on. He saw somebody flip the bird at them, and he heard one other guy yelling from the sidewalk, you'll be in Baltimore by Christmas. They were green on the business side. The first home opener against Pittsburgh drew less than 8,000 fans, less than half full. And the team sure felt green, as Ed recalls. We were playing in the first round against St. Louis. St. Louis pulverized us. And I said, look, we're an expansion team. We may not be able to skate with the big teams like Montreal at this particular time, but we don't have to get beaten up, and I never want another team of mine to get beaten up like that again. And we drafted a bunch of tough guys. We drafted Bob Kelly, Dave Schultz, who was known as the Hammer, and probably the best fighter I've ever seen in hockey. You know, Don Celeste, and we became the aggressors. And, uh, you know, after all, if that's what they allow in hockey, that's what we're going to do. So it sort of established a reputation that we still haven't lived down. <laughs> what the Flyers did that no other team had previously done was win through intimidation. They really made fighting a tactic. People knew right away that this was something different. It was all part of the game plan, it was all part of the strategy. We're just going to go out and annihilate people. And by annihilating them, we're going to render them ineffective, and that's how we're going to win. And it worked. It helped, of course, that the Flyers drafted a center from Flin Flon named Bobby Clark in the second round of the 74 draft. We drafted Bobby Clark, and that was really the turning point for our franchise. I was at the draft table, and it was a very interesting draft. Bobby Clark had diabetes, and I think most of the scouts knew that, and they were worried about his stamina. Every team in the league passed up Bobby Clark at least once. Several passed him up twice, and at least one passed him up three times before the Flyers took him in the second round. Mr. Snyder called a doctor in Philadelphia who was a diabetic specialist and asked him. The doctor assured him that if I lived like a diabetic is supposed to, that I'd be able to play. Here's a little kid that shaved with a Kleenex, and you knew he was going to be a leader right off the get-go. Now that the Flyers acquired the great Bobby Clark and the rest of their bullies, it was time to draft some Lady Luck. Mrs. Patriotism herself, Kate Smith, who Frank Sinatra dubbed the best singer of her generation, made an unlikely charm for this band of thugs. But Smith's voice provided a winning soundtrack to the flourishing love affair between Philly and its flyers. Here's former Spectrum president, Lou Scheinfeld. I had noticed that because of the Vietnam War and a lot of uh, apathy in America and anti-American spirit, that at hockey games, people were talking and walking around during the national anthem. And it bothered me. 
And I came across this recording of Kate Smith that she made on Armistice Day, November 11th of 1938. And I thought, wow, what a great song. So one night, I told the sound booth, I said, I've got a tape for you of uh, God Bless America. We're going to play this tonight instead of the national anthem. And he said, are you kidding? I said, no, we're going to play this. So I said to Lou, look, we won the game. So I never want to know when you're doing it. Just do it when you think you should. And he would pick specific games and play God Bless America, and our record was outstanding. Over five seasons, the Flyers were an astounding 35-3-1 when Smith's recording of God Bless America preceded a game. She was the great lady of Philadelphia. Building it out. We loved her. She was ours. There was that feeling right afterwards. There's no way the Flyers are going to lose. No way. And this story just keeps getting better. Imagine that. 35-3-1 when they haul out Kate Smith's recording. Which, by the way, we learned it wasn't included in this story. The audience didn't warm up to the first time. Each successive time it played, it became theirs. And just proof that if you stick to some ideas long enough they'll actually stick. Something that's missing in the creative arts, particularly these days, cancellations of shows and artists' careers before they even develop. And what a story we're hearing about Ed Snyder and the Flyers, and particularly, I'll remember, I'll never forget that, is seeing Dave Schultz do what he does. I mean, he earned the nickname The Hammer for a reason. I mean, within no time at all, he was looking for a fight. And when the Flyers and the Rangers played, and I had the luck to see those two battle out in the Spectrum and in Madison Square Garden, and what a joy. When we come back, more about this story. One man, Ed Snyder, his love affair with hockey, and the creation of a team that reflected his basic character. He was a fighter, and my goodness, the Flyers were going to be fighters. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our This Day in History segment brought to you, as always, by Hillsdale College. We had learned in the first segment a bit about Ed Snyder's early life. He was Jewish, he faced discrimination and heckling, and he learned how to fight. And, uh, well, he bopped around, got an accounting degree, but didn't like the speed at which he was going to make what he thought was a suitable salary. Well, so he's a fighter there, too. He's fighting for his living wage for his family as he saw it and he wasn't happy with that that rate of speed and growth at the accounting firm and then you learned about how he had to struggle to get that two million dollar loan from the bank to get that franchise right and how that happened at just the last minute and now well we're learning a lot more about the flyers team their fighting spirit reflected in the character of its owner and 
Well, developing a tradition in this town that had never known hockey before. No small thing to do. And now we continue with this great story. As the newly anointed Broad Street Bullies, the Flyers would go on to be the first expansion team to win a Stanley Cup in outside in the parking lot listening to the game when the game was over the doors were opened and that's the fans that came on the ice because there was tons of fans we, we couldn't really skate around people would not leave the building they would not leave the area and people from all over philadelphia were coming down to the building you have to bring yourself back to philadelphia in that time the uh, eagles it won in 1960, and then it pretty much gone downhill ever since. The Sixers had one of the worst teams in history in the early 70s, and the Phillies weren't quite to the point where they started to grow into the mid-70s and into the late 70s. And so it was a sports town dying for a championship. By the next morning, we were uh, driving down to the University of Pennsylvania to meet the drivers in the cars for our parade and people were just absolutely everywhere. And it turned out to be two million people. Just the whole city was just full of joy, you know, it was a beautiful thing. Some considered the Flyers' Stanley Cup victory a fluke, but a cup victory the following year silenced all naysayers. It's all over! The Flyers have won the second in a row! The Flyers have won their second consecutive Stanley Cup! I think it was validation to a certain degree, but we knew that we were more than, quote, quote, the Broad Street Bullies. But as far as, I guess, saying, hey, you know, we did it once, call it lucky, call it a fluke, you do it twice, you're a pretty darn good team, and that's what we felt we were. We intimidated everybody, and it wasn't just dropping the gloves. You could be the Broad Street Bullies, you could be the Joe Bellino Bullies, you could be anybody you want. Unless you have the talent, you're not going to win. Period. And they had the talent. Fresh off their second consecutive Stanley Cup win, the Broad Street Bullies needed a new challenge. They'd now take their fight to the Soviets. In his own zone, up to center, Mikhailov backs up again, and they get going on the power play now. Everybody's struggling. Gustav is tilted hard by Dupont. Oh, what a check! On January 11th, 1976, the Philadelphia Flyers would treat the Soviet Red Army team to American-style hockey. And in just 40 seconds, the Flyers, to the wild cheers of the crowd, delivered four solid shots. Not on the goal, but on the Soviet players themselves. That Kailov, oh, again, Karlamov is really belted by Van Em, and he's straight on the ice. Van Em from the penalty box ran into Karlamov. The Soviets are all standing up. They want a penalty, but I'll tell you, Dick, that was a solid check, and I didn't see too much wrong with it. They are leaving the ice. They're going to go. 
The Soviets are leaving. They're going home. They're going home. Yeah, they're going home. Can you imagine? It took just a little more than half the first period for the Russians to retreat. We don't need this kind of hockey. This is anti-hockey. Hey, we're not going to put up with this. This is not hockey. This is a warfare. I remember running for the press box down there, and Ed Snyder went up to their coach and through an interpreter, he said to him, Tell them they're not going to get paid. You want to leave? Go ahead. You're not getting any money. And 15 minutes later, the Russian team appeared back on the ice. The Soviet Army team is back on the ice here at the Spectrum. So the communists were a little bit more capitalistic than people thought. <laughs> Maybe in their minds, they thought if they came back, we'd be more careful or we wouldn't play flyer hockey. But they were sadly mistaken. The Soviets would come back, but they probably wished they didn't. Let's see what happens now. As play is underway again, there's no score. The Soviet team is shorthanded on that bench minor. And this is Leach shooting it in. Into the left wing corner, they all chase. Lukotko there first, by to ice. Back to the point. Barber dumps it in on the net. Goal! I remember the goal because I was the one that took the shot and Reggie tipped it in. And then we got the ball rolling. And then we never looked back. Up the ice, we have a breakaway for McLean. He'll go right in on shot. Goal! And the game is over. The final score. The Philadelphia Flyers four, and the Soviet Army one. A beautiful masterpiece of a performance. I don't drink vodka, but I did that night. <laughs> there was uh, the cartoon in the, the Pravda in the Russian paper of the Flyers with huge clubs how we beat their poor little Russian players. We loved it. We just loved it. We think we saved America, we saved Canada, we saved the hockey world, and all from the most unlikeliest bunch of guys you've ever met in your life. Ed would fondly remember the victory, a cartoon that hangs proudly in his office. The Philadelphia Flyers would go on to sell out the spectrum nearly every season since, and Flyers' colors, orange and black, would become synonymous with Philadelphia. Long after Ed Snyder's skates hang up, the Flyers will skate on and fight with their all for their founder, Ed Snyder. Great job on that, Greg. That's a lot of work and well worth it. What a story, folks. Here in our American stories, no one else is telling you the story of the 50th anniversary of the Philadelphia Flyers, that's for sure. And I'm not a huge hockey fan, but when I loved hockey, it was because I was in that arena. It is a sport you must see to love and you must be around. Uh, it's not a TV sport the way so many other sports are. Seeing the checking, the energy, just watching the games and the patterns and plays unfold is really something. Great job on that, Alex, John, and Greg. That's a lot of work and well worth it. What a story, folks, on our American stories. Stories like this no one else is telling you. 
the story of Philadelphia Flyers founder Ed Snyder today on his birthday. I'm not a huge hockey fan, but when I loved hockey, it was because I was in that arena. American Stories, and you're listening to Albert King's Laundromat Blues, one of the most influential bluesmen in history. Albert King ushered blues into the modern era by combining his direct, urgent Mississippi blues style with contemporary soul rhythms. He continually redefined the state of the art and music form with his dry, husky voice and torrid, flying V guitar sound. And on this day in history, in 1958, the patent was granted for the Gibson Flying V guitar, changing rock history forever. And we love to tell stories about music here on Our American Stories and history and business. And this is one of those stories where all of them intersect. And by the way, that patent, that patent is secured. The right to the patent is secured by our founders, not in the Bill of Rights, but right there in Article 1. Guys like Ben Franklin understood that men's ideas needed to be secured. Not just our property, but our intellectual property. That's how brilliant those guys were. And America's not America without it. Not without it. And as always, this day in history is brought to us by Hillsdale College. And my goodness, at Hillsdale you'll learn about the Constitution and what I just talked about. But you'll learn about so much more, music and history and the arts and philosophy. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will, of course, come to you with their great online courses. Their C.S. Lewis course should not be missed. And so our producer, Jesse Edwards, who loves blues and who I think sometimes pinches himself that he's living in the heart of blues country, an Oregon transplant, brings us the sound and the story of the Gibson Flying V while accompanied by a master guitarist who will demonstrate the tone that can be pulled from this legendary axe. When you daydream about guitars all day long like I do, 
One of the first things that comes to mind is the tone, the brand, the style, the shape. A lot of people are drawn to more traditional axes like the ever-popular Fender Stratocaster or the iconic Gibson Les Paul, both of which have their correct time and place in the guitarosphere. I just made that term up. But there's one guitar that is guaranteed to get a second or even a third look when hanging on the wall at your local guitar shop. Looking kind of like a spaceship with wings that you could probably fly into another dimension, the Gibson Flying V Guitar is as big on personality as it is on sound and just all-around badassery. In fact, you're listening to a Gibson Flying V right now, played by riff master and guitar aficionado Greg Cock. Tell us about this beast of a guitar you're playing on, Greg. Sorry, I could go all day. Gibson Custom Shop, limited run, flying V Custom. Ebony, of course, with the delicious gold hardware. This one is CS300394, weighing at 7.53 pounds. Very articulate guitar. Very even sounding. Cuts through great, sustains like a beast. You lay into the strings a little bit, they give. Though the amp fart now, it's delicious. The Flying V was first released by Gibson Guitars in 1958. It offered a radical and futuristic body design, much like its sibling, the Explorer, which was released the same year. Gibson first manufactured prototypes of the Flying V in 1957. Production guitars were made of Carina wood, a trademarked name for Limba, a wood similar but lighter in color than mahogany. The Flying V, along with the Explorer, made up a line of modernist guitars designed by Gibson's then-president Ted McCarty. These designs were meant to add a more futuristic aspect to Gibson's image, but they didn't sell very well. After the initial launch in 1958, the line was discontinued by 59. Some instruments were assembled from leftover parts and shipped in 1963 with nickel rather than gold-plated hardware. Blues rock guitarist Lonnie Mack and blues guitarist Albert King started using the guitar almost immediately. Mack used his 1958 Flying V almost exclusively during his career. Albert King used his original 1958 Flying V into the mid-70s and later replaced it with various custom Flying Vs. Later, in the mid-1960s, guitarists like Dave Davies in search of a distinctive-looking guitar with powerful sound also started using Flying Vs. Because of its newfound popularity, there was a demand for Gibson to reissue the model. Let's check back in with guitar picker extraordinaire Greg Cock. Greg? The power of the V! It's a friend of <laughs> you and me! What kind of V are you flying for us this time, Greg? Gibson Custom Shop Benchmark Limited 1967 Flying V Reish. Ooh. <laughs> 040777. Lucky guitar. 6.22 pounds. This thing sounds like a million bucks, but it doesn't cost that much. That's important. Nice and light. Kind of like a boomerang of Sonic Malfeasance. Let's go to our friend, the middle position, featuring both of these humbucking pickups. Now, Gibson reissued the guitar in mahogany in 1967, updating its design with 
a bigger pick guard, and replacing the original bridge, which had the strings inserted through the back, with the stop bar tailpiece more commonly associated with Gibson models. Some models were shipped with a short Vibrola Mastro Tremolo. This 1967 model is now the standard for the Flying V, although the earlier design is periodically reissued. Like other Gibson guitars, the Flying V's headstock is angled at 17 degrees to increase string pressure on the nut in order to increase the amount of sustain. The design of the V places the pickups near the center mass of the entire guitar, further enhancing sustain. Flying V's later became a popular heavy metal guitar due to their aggressive appearance and were used by people like James Hetfield, Kirk Hammett, and Dave Mustaine. The 1958 Gibson Corina Flying V is one of the most valuable production model guitars on the market, ranked at number 5 on the 2011 Top 25 published by Vintage Guitar, with a net worth between $200,000 and $250,000. Once again is guitarist Greg Cock, who's been demonstrating a couple of different Gibson Flying Vs for us. Tell us about this third and final V you're playing for us, Greg. Juicy tones from this Gibson Custom Shop 1959 Flying V. V is for victory. 6.94 pounds. Natural is the color. Golden hardware. You know what that portends? Sweet opulence. And positions of power and glory. If that's your bag, a lot of articulation in these guitars. I can dig it. This one's no exception. And that's the Gibson Flying V. What a better way to pay tribute to such an iconic and eye-catching guitar than to simply listen to the instrument unaccompanied in its purest form. Once again, you're listening to the sounds of the Gibson Flying V guitar, played by master picker Greg Cock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Play us out, Greg. Later. And I can always tell when Jesse's happiest. <laughs> and there you have it. And thanks for that, Jesse. And sure. uh, it's a labor of love. And anytime we're talking about the things we love, we light up. It's just a fact of life. And again, on this day in history in 1958, the patent was granted for the Gibson Flying V guitar, changing rock and roll and rock history forever. Let's leave where we started with Albert King playing his Flying V. Everybody wants to laugh, ah, but nobody wants to cry. 
everybody wants to laugh But nobody wants to cry Everybody wants to go to heaven But nobody wants to die Everybody wanna hear the truth But yet everybody wants to tell a lie This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and this day in history, January 6th, in the year 1919, Theodore Teddy Roosevelt passed away. The 26th President of the United States, the youngest one in history at the age of 42, and the only one to win both the Nobel Peace Prize and the Medal of Honor. Whatever you think of his politics, and they were confounding to partisans on both sides of the aisle. Roosevelt was one of the biggest characters to ever lead our nation. Teddy became a legend for his Rough Riders that won the Spanish-American War in Cuba, his foreign policy of speak softly and carry a big stick, his trust-busting, a Republican busting trusts, and the Square Deal, the creation of the Panama Canal, placing 230 million acres into public conservation, and on a lighter note, the teddy bear, and being the first customer of Brooks Brothers. Joining us now to celebrate the life of Teddy Roosevelt is Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books on leadership, including the captivating book I highly recommend picking up called 21 Great Leaders, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Influence, which has a whole chapter on Teddy Roosevelt. And Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lee. Yeah, so much to talk about. So many interesting facets of Theodore Roosevelt's life. And uh, how do you pack all that into an hour radio show, Lee? No, I don't know. And I'm just just reading that paragraph. I go, what other man in modern American life can we say that about, Pat? Oh, nobody, nobody close. Nobody close. Nobody had his energy, his enthusiasm, his passion for life. We haven't even gotten into Lee, or you didn't have a time to discuss uh, his role as a father. Uh, and as a husband, uh, that brood of <laughs> rambunctious boys that he raised, and uh, his writing, you know, he was a prolific author, and even a more prolific reader. So uh, we've got plenty to talk about. Well, let's talk about that, Pat. Uh, you know, he was a voracious reader and writer. He wrote 36 books and more than 100,000 letters. Now, this is a common theme that keeps coming up in leadership segments we're doing together, Pat. It was a big part of John Wooden's life, as you know. Tell us about this facet of Roosevelt's life, the writer's life, the reader's life. Well, it's fascinating indeed. You know, he he prided himself, and he would finish two, three books a day, you know, even when he was in the White House. Uh, They tell the story when he would come down for breakfast, 
he would have a whole stack of newspapers under his arm, and he would sit there eating and discarding the papers on the floor, you know, as he finished them. Uh, he was indeed a, a huge re- reader. Uh, President Harry Truman, well after that, Lee, said, not all readers will be leaders, but all leaders must be readers. Right. And so, so Teddy Roosevelt really lays out for us a, a, a real challenge about the importance of reading, reading good books, reading from history, reading biographies, reading in, in areas where you have an interest, and uh, having books lined up ready to go. Uh, he had one book after another sitting right there waiting to be read, and he was uh, very serious and organized about his reading. And this is a recurrent theme we come across, isn't it, Pat? Not just about the writing and the reading, but in all of your studies of leadership, it's just a little segue here, how much does reading come up in those 80 case studies you've done? Oh, I would say it comes up uh, constantly, Lee. Uh, You know, just for an example, we know that John Wooden was a serious reader, a voracious reader. Uh, I've written a book uh, on Abraham Lincoln as a leader, and we all know about Lincoln, you know, reading and finding books when he was a youngster and reading by the candlelight and, you know, searching out books when they were hard to find. Uh, I think it's safe to say that all the great leaders in American history, you know, were serious about their reading. Uh, They made it a high, high priority. So that's a good challenge for all of us, Lee. Uh, I encourage people everywhere, no matter what field you're in, uh, to read an hour a day from, from, a, from a good book. If you'll do that, by the way, at the end of one week, you'll have finished that book. Yep. Keep that up for a year. We're talking 52 books. Ten years? Well, that's 520 books you'll have read. And uh, you can do that, folks. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt really sets the example for us. You know, in this, in this chapter of your book titled The Man in the Arena, which comes from a passage of a Roosevelt speech and which wonderfully captures the essence of his life, you tell an incredible story about Roosevelt's time in Milwaukee that reinforces this theme. Uh, can you share it with us, Pat? Lee, that was brought home to me a couple of summers ago. I was in Milwaukee in that hotel, and there's a, there's a sign or there's a plaque you know, up on the wall uh, describing exactly what happened in that location. Uh, but Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech uh, when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, uh, a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, you know, he had it right there, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the, the blow of the bullet. And uh, they were ro- wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, take me to the auditorium. And the next thing you know, he's standing up there in front of this big crowd and tells them exactly what happened. And he said, you can't doubt a bull moose. And he went on with his speech before he went to the hospital. So Reagan wasn't the first president who used humor and sort of deflected the attention away from himself at a mortal time of, of, of peril for himself and his body. This is Lee Habib. We're talking about Teddy Roosevelt for the hour. We're joined by Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic, who's written about Ted, Teddy Roosevelt. When we come back, more from Pat and more about this great man.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear this and everything we've done. It's all posted. And we're joined by our regular guest on leadership, Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior VP of the Orlando Magic. He's written 80 books on leadership. He's also run 58 marathons and has 19 children, 14 of which are adopted. And he finds time also, thankfully, to join us every week. Thanks, Pat, again for joining us. Nice to be with you, Lee. Thanks. You bet. You bet. You know, what's interesting about that, Roosevelt, he was, he was shot. He doesn't flinch. He also goes on to speak for nearly an hour and then went to the hospital. I want to go and talk to you a bit about uh, the Spanish-American War. Uh, he didn't need to be there, Pat. He didn't need to go. Tell us about that. Lee, he craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, uh, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. And uh, he was always disappointed that his father had not gone ahead and fought in the Civil War, but had bought his way out of it. And uh, he was determined to get in the middle of that war. So he raised, uh, he raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together and paid for their uh, uniforms and got them ready to go. And uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up the San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired, and T.R. was right in the middle of it. Became quite a national hero. Oh, my goodness, the newspapers uh, made a big, big deal out of it, and it was a big deal. Here was this this man who came from, uh, you know, good means, and he decided that he was going to be a soldier, and he was. Just another uh, another notch on his resume. He was a man of many skills, including soldiering. Well, he led, it sounds to me like, you know, leading in action is a big part of leadership. I mean, John Wooden was a, well, he was a three-time All-American, so he led on the floor, I think thus making it easier for him, Pat, to lead off the floor. Oh, there's no question about that. John Wooden is in the Hall of Fame for his playing days as well as his coaching days. Not many uh, people have been treated to that, those, that double award, uh, but that was the case with John Wooden. Uh, he was a man of action. So I think, I think Roosevelt teaches us, don't sit on the sidelines. You know, life is meant to be played to the fullest extent. And, uh, you know, don't hold back. Uh, if you've got dreams in your life, go pursue them and, and give it everything you've got. And attack life with a vengeance, you know, with some real fire. I think that really is how you describe Teddy Roosevelt. You bet. You bet. You know, it's interesting, and, it, and there are many paradoxes of this great man. Here he loves action, but as President of the United States, he uses his bully pulpit to make football a less violent sport. Talk about that, Pat. Well, he was a sports fan, Lee, and that was a big deal uh, back at the turn of the century. Football had, had, had started. It was a major sport in the colleges. However, it had gotten out of control. I mean, we, we hear a lot today about concussions and all, but in the, back in those days, you know, with very little good equipment. I mean, got, people were dying on the football field at, at the college level. You know, there would be 10, 12, 15 players that would be killed every, every fall because of the roughness of the game. The rules were rather vague. The equipment wasn't all that good, and the players were being killed. And Roosevelt, who didn't want to see the sport disappear, uh, made the, uh, the colleges, made the conferences pay attention to him, and he threatened them that the game would be stopped unless they did something to make it a safer sport. And they did, 
and the game did become a safer sport, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a huge part of that. He did see, in the end, uh, football as a sort of a battlefield preparation for for life and for actual military service in battle itself. Talk about that, Pat. Oh, I think that's true, Lee. I think he saw football as a, as a battle without guns, uh, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders, uh, that it, it developed physical and mental toughness in young men, and, uh, of course, that was all going to come to a, a head uh, a little bit later during the First World War, and, of course, later in the Second World War, when so many of the leaders, you know, had come out of West Point. They were former football players, and uh, they carried that over into their military duties. And so I think Roosevelt saw ahead uh, the importance of these young football players and what they could do for their country later on. It turned out to be prophetic. You know, he said in a 1903 presidential address to an audience about football, I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the one person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. Pretty good, uh, pretty good statement. <laughs> and, a lot of, and a lot of those injuries were fatal, and, and so uh, Roosevelt stepped in and forced the colleges, forced the football people to, to make their game a safer sport. And that, that has been the case ever since. You bet. There's a humorous quote in your book, Pat, from Vice President Thomas R. Marshall about how Teddy wasn't in the arena when he died, and the result may have been different if he was in the arena. What, what did Marshall say? Do you recall? Well, I do recall. He died in his sleep, and, uh, and Marshall made the statement that that's a good thing because if he had been alive, you know, uh, there would have been a fight. <laughs> so he said death had to take Roosevelt sleeping, for if he'd been awake, there would have been a fight. Uh, that was the way Teddy Roosevelt went about his life. He lived every minute of it uh, to the hilt, and he died in his sleep. And Marshall was simply saying that if he'd been awake, uh, there would have been quite a tussle before death could take him. Well, you know, to understand the man and the fighter, I think in the end, Pat, we have to understand his father. I wanted to play a few clips for you. Here's historian David McCulloch on Teddy Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. Now, the father was called Greatheart. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Greatheart is the Christian warrior, the protector. The father would not tolerate deceit, would not tolerate cowardice. Everybody had to measure up. He was God in his house. And like God, you walked a little humbly in his presence. Pat, how would Teddy, a naturally weak boy born with asthma... A boy some doubted would make it even to his fourth birthday, measure up to such a giant of a dad. Well, that's a great point, and, and wasn't it wonderful to hear David McCullough's beautiful voice? That was great. Uh, yeah, his, his dad set the tone in that house, and he forced Teddy to, uh, to assert himself physically, you know, strength building, uh, aerobically to get stronger. Uh, he absolutely forced him to, to live the disciplined life and uh, and Teddy did do that. He followed his dad, of course, was a powerful influence. And uh, Teddy stepped up and, you know, really began to build up his strength and build up his body. And we all know as, as time went on, you know, he was just a very, he was short, but very strong, very muscular. Uh, he went out west later on in his early, you know, in his 20s and lived the life of a cowboy. And uh, he was a, a very strong, physical young guy. And of course, he Went on into the Spanish-American War and 
later made trips down to you know to Brazil and uh, lived a very very aggressive life that required a strong strong stable body and he had developed that all on his own you know here's more of david mcculloch on the young teddy's asthma and what it would mean years down the road it's as though you're being strangled to death it is though you're being denied life suddenly and mysteriously and it comes on you involuntarily everybody around you is galvanized by the horror of this experience that you are going through you are it's, it's as if they're attending a hanging and you are being hanged you know pat as i heard that i was thinking two things first my goodness if you have something like asthma you've lived through really tough things this might make you more risk uh, risk tolerant and then second in the end it makes you tougher uh, talk about both of those things, Pat. Well, Lee, let me just say this. We hear when people have asthma, I think my reaction is it's not that big a deal. Uh, you know, you deal with it and you can be okay. However, uh, David McCullough certainly brings that to life, doesn't he? As he <laughs> talks about the, uh, you know, literally the fact that you're, you feel like you're strangling to death. So that's what young Teddy Roosevelt was dealing with. And he uh, he finally developed his body and his strength so that he got past that. But it had to be a very, very difficult uh, time and as a young boy, you know, to deal with that. I can't even imagine. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books on leadership, including the captivating book I highly recommend picking up called 21 Great Leaders, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Influence which has a whole chapter on Teddy Roosevelt, who we're celebrating today on the day that he died in the year 1919. And as always, these This Day in History segments are brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in this country to learn about history and the Constitution and to pick up a classical liberal arts education. Whether you're a college student or not, check out Hillsdale College. Enroll there, send your kids there, or take the terrific and free online courses on their website. We'll be back with more after these short messages. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we're back with our This Day in History segment brought to us by our sponsor, Hillsdale College. On this day in history, in the year 1919, Teddy Roosevelt died, and Pat Williams, the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic, has been joining us for the celebration of his life. We left off talking about a letter Teddy sent to his friend Edward S. Martin, in which he wrote about what his dad would do when the young boy's asthma was so debilitating that they weren't sure he would survive the night. Let's return to that conversation. What did Teddy say to his buddy in this letter? Some of my earliest remembrances are of nights when he would walk up and down with me for an hour at a time in his arms. 
when I was a wretched mite, suffering acutely with asthma. That's beautiful. And, 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 and you know, it shows a sensitivity. This, this rough rider, this tough guy, maybe this asthma also revealed and, and developed a sensitivity as well, Pat. There were many sides to him. You're right, he was very sensitive, and he was a, a very sensitive writer, for example. He was a scholar. He was a student. He studied history. He was also a guy who uh, was out on the, on the plains out west, you know, as living with those cowboys. And he was a, you know, a hail fellow, well-met Easterner, but he was out there and won over the trust of the Westerners, those cowboys. And so he had many facets to his life and to his personality. I think, frankly, Lee, that's why we're so intrigued with him to this day. That's why there's still books pouring out on Teddy Roosevelt and historians study him relentlessly. I, the most recent book, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, writes about Teddy Roosevelt along with William Howard Taft. So I, I don't think we can get enough of this man. There's so many things, so many a- aspects to his life. You know, Pat, you write about Teddy going away for school for the first time to Harvard, and his dad penned him a letter offering him both praise and advice. What did that letter say? Here's what it said. He said, you have been blessed with a wonderful mind, but you have to build your body. You have to take charge of your body. In a way, in a larger way, he was saying, you have to take charge of your life. And, you know, important words for dads to tell their boys. And, you know, we're going to be doing segments later on in the week, Pat, about helicopter parents, kids going off to school, and not being able to handle the anxiety or the tension. And here was a a father giving uh, pretty tough advice. Later in the letter, he also says, "I, I saw the last of the train bearing you away. I realized what a luxury it was to have a boy in whom I could place perfect trust and confidence. Take care of your morals first, your health next, and finally your studies. So what a, what a remarkable dual set of advices in one, one letter. Talk about the order of those three things, Pat, because it was morals, health, and finally your studies. Yeah, a good, a good counsel from a dad years ago, right? Uh, I think any dad today would, uh, would uh, buy that in a heartbeat. In other words, take care of your character. Uh, yep. Make sure you're honest. Make sure you live a life of integrity. Uh, don't cut corners. Um, act the same in public as you would in private, or private as public. Uh, you know, be a be a young man of strong character. And uh, and secondly, take care of your health. Listen, how many kids go to college, Lee, and go off the deep end? They stop eating right. Uh, they start drinking. Uh, they get involved with things they shouldn't be involved with, and the next thing you know, uh, they start ruining their health or start forming habits that's going to ruin their health later on. And so Mr. Roosevelt was making very, very sure that uh, young Teddy was going to take care of himself uh, physically. And then thirdly, you know, make sure you, uh, you're a good student. Yep, and you know, thirdly don't, is... Don't, yeah. don't cut classes, you know, do your homework, stay on top of your studies, you know, don't get behind... Uh, be serious about your study. So, so therefore, Lee, I would say to uh, to any dad uh, advising their children off to college, uh, be a young man or woman of character, take care of your health, and and really stay focused on your schoolwork. 
Yeah, great advice then and eternally, probably. We already spoke about uh, Teddy Roosevelt's physical and emotional courage, Pat, to be in the arena of the Spanish-American War as the Secretary of Navy, but it would also take intellectual courage to assemble the ragtag group of Rough Riders who couldn't seem more different. We are now about to hear from the PBS American Experience documentary on Roosevelt, Pat. Mm-hmm. From the more than 20,000 who applied, he chose a 1,000 men who reflected his own widely varied connections. There were Ivy Leaguers and Cowboys, yachtsmen and a Scottish laird, four New York City policemen, an Arizona sheriff, the tennis champion of the United States, Choctaw, Cherokee, and Creek Indians, and the world's greatest polo player, all brought together by the prospect of fighting under Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt hailed them as the children of the dragon's blood. I, you know, I almost think of Walt Whitman when I think of something like that. What other U.S. president could have assembled a tag team like that of men from every walk of life? And what does it say about his character, Pat? Well, what it says is he had contact with all of these people somehow or other from somewhere in his past. And uh, they all wanted to be with him. Uh, they all wanted that adventure. They all wanted to be soldiers. Uh, soldiers being led by Theodore Roosevelt. I think that's what it says. Yeah, what an honor. Built, built relationships with these men over, over time. And in this moment of a crisis, you know, they all wanted to be part of his team. Yep, with a, it's probably just a mere, a mere letter or note. Uh, I wanted to also talk about uh, Booker T. Washington and race with you, Pat. When Roosevelt became president, he continued to upset and defy convention, inviting the African-American educator Booker T. Washington to dine with him and his family. He was the first president ever to entertain a black man in the White House. Here's George Washington University professor James Horton speaking about that occasion, Pat. Booker T. Washington was the most acceptable black man in the country from Theodore Roosevelt's point of view. Booker T. Washington uh, talked about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, this is precisely what Theodore Roosevelt uh, wanted not only black people to do, but all people to do. Roosevelt got a low, lot of blowback for this, didn't he, Pat? Oh, he was heavily criticized. I mean heavily criticized. The fact that a black man was going to be in the White House, you know, having dinner with the President of the United States. Well, Roosevelt really didn't care. Uh, he wanted to do what he thought was the right thing. Uh, he, uh, he took the criticism, and it was severe. But uh, I think to this day it had a big impact, uh, not immediately, but it certainly had a big impact you know, on our nation and the whole area of civil rights. Roosevelt was a leader in that regard. Remarkable. And in Richmond Times, it said, it means Roosevelt approved of black men courting white women. A Memphis senator said, most damnable outrage that he has ever been perpetuated by any citizen of the United States. And, you know, it's interesting that this is McCulloch on, on and I wanted to play this clip, because this, is, this gets down to his courage in the end, Pat. Let's hear from David McCulloch on Roosevelt's courage. He liked to say there were all kinds of things of which I was afraid. Mean horses, gunfighters, and grizzly bears. But by acting as if I were not afraid, wasn't afraid at all, I found that I wasn't afraid. Pat, we're going to close out with this with you. I think this may be the most important quote of them all. Talk about this. Well, the quote was Roosevelt's letter. He said, I'm not sure what to do, but I am sure 
that the only thing to do is to treat every black and white man on his merits as a man. The South is crazy because I had Booker T. Washington to dine. I shall have him dine as often as I please. Well, there you go. And this is uh, Pat Williams, as always, bringing to life great leaders, often from sports, sometimes from civics and history. This is Lee Habib. Pat Williams, thanks so much for joining us, as always. My pleasure, Lee. Nice to talk to you. You bet. When we come back, folks, we're going to get down to Roosevelt's conservation legacy. And this may be his biggest of all. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. And you can hear all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we're back with today's This Day in History segment brought to you by Hillsdale College, and it's on Teddy Roosevelt. On This Day in History, he died in 1919. No college in America digs into American history like them. We'll be consulting with them, professors will be coming on, and always we're, we're talking about and thinking about history and thinking about one of our great sponsors here, Hillsdale College. For this last segment in our hour-long tribute to Teddy Roosevelt's life, we're going to zero in on his enormous environmental efforts. Earlier today, our field correspondent Alex Cortez interviewed environmental expert Terry Anderson, a senior fellow and the former president of the Property and Environmental Research Center, or PERC for short. We now take you to their conversation. Terry, what's President Roosevelt's legacy on conservation? I think TR gets credit for bringing conservation to the public's attention, for sure. We have to look back at the time. I mean, he, he knew John Muir. Uh, he was, he was do, taking these actions when people like Muir and other uh, of the, the leading conservationists at the time, who, who really were conservationists in the sense that they realized that you had to manage uh, many of these lands. Uh, and this is a time when when the the environmental consciousness of the American public uh, was growing, and uh, he certainly uh, uh, fertilized that growth. Roosevelt is famous for putting one third of U.S. land into federal control for conservation. What are your thoughts of the results of this action? Public conservation is equated with with governmental control, but the data simply don't bear that out. The best habitat in the United States for wildlife, the best managed lands for timber, uh, and the list goes on, are private lands. If you compare private lands and even state lands, I might add, with the federal lands, the federal lands pale in comparison. They have uh, disease problems with timber. Much of the wildfire we hear about every summer is not due so much to global warming as it is to poor management. Uh, the land is not managed well for wildlife habitat, including uh, endangered species. Here in my backyard, grizzly bears and Canada lynx 
are uh, on the endangered species list and and the timber around uh, the area where I live in Montana is so thick that grizzly bears couldn't find anything to eat. So it, it he just left a, a management process, a bureaucratic process that has not adapted to the changes that need to be made in meeting the human demands as well as the ecological conditions. And furthermore, all those lands lose money over and over for the U.S. taxpayer. I think therein is is a tremendous problem. And the private component of, of land management is is far superior and has demonstrated results over and over that we can get better conservation. We can get private conservation in the public interest. Do you have a specific example in mind where you've seen better private stewardship of land than public? The Flathead Indian Reservation in northwest Montana is, is for all intents and purposes, private land. Now, it's owned by the tribe, and it's managed by the tribe. Sitting next door to the reservation is the Lolo National Forest. We did a study at, at PERC, the Property and Environment Research Center, where I uh, have worked for 20 years, uh, comparing the, the tribe's management with the federal government's management. The tribe makes money all the time, whereas the federal government just breaks even, and that's one of the best forests around. The tribe makes $2 for every dollar it spends. The federal government essentially breaks even dollar for dollar. More importantly, the tribe has better wildlife habitat. It has a better distribution, species distribution of trees, a better age distribution of trees, fewer wildfires, better water quality, and I could go on and on. So if we can devolve management at least of these lands to more local levels, we could do far better and, and, and truly make Teddy Roosevelt a conservation hero. How about Yellowstone or Yosemite as great legacies of Roosevelt's? If you ask the average American, how did Yellowstone get created or Yosemite get created, they will answer that Teddy Roosevelt did it. Both of those parks were created uh, I have to think about when he was born, uh, probably about when he was born. Uh, so he didn't do it. Uh, both of those parks were essentially created by the railroads. Uh, they were created by the railroads because the railroads saw the, the, the beauty in, in nature back to what Teddy Roosevelt did. He raised our consciousness. And the railroads recognized this was a place they could bring tourists to. And But they couldn't get private ownership of Yellowstone or Yosemite, and so they lobbied for and got Congress to establish those parks in the 1870s. There seems to be a shift in where bold leadership is coming on the environment, from the government in Teddy's era to private individuals, or what your organization calls envirepreneurs taking the lead today. What are you seeing? What is happening is I think more and more people are recognizing that that people like Turner and and, uh, Kennedy and Bacon, who own large tracts of private land, are providing uh, ideal habitat. It's the best land. It's the land that was homesteaded early on because it had good grass, it had good cover, it had good water. And I think what, what some people recognize is that these private managers are, are great stewards of the land. How about the argument that the public should have access to these private lands? 
which they are able to have access for for the lands that Roosevelt conserved. Of course, they don't open it to the public. They don't have, uh, in Turner's case, as I mentioned, there's a public road going through the ranch, so you can drive on that, but you can't get off and take a hike on his land, or he'll tell you to take a hike. Uh, what, what, what is obvious, though, is that by restricting access, by limiting the number of people, uh, these these landowners are are doing a service to the public because the resources that are are conserved that are stewarded. Let me speak to to Jim Kennedy's property. Uh, he has land here in Montana, where he has done a magnificent job of stream reclamation. He has created fish habitat that was destroyed by earlier uh, grazing because fish habitat wasn't valuable to grazers. They wanted their cattle to eat the grass and drink from the stream. He's reclaimed those streams and turned them into magnificent trout streams. The water that flows through Jim Kennedy's property, uh, the elk that graze on Ted Turner's ranch, are free to move. They're not fenced in. They're not trapped. Uh, and so cleaner water flows downstream from, from the, the spring creeks, in Jim Kennedy's case, uh, into the Ruby River, on into the Jefferson River, and, and on down. That's clean water that comes to the public. Uh, Jim doesn't capture all the value of that. Uh, when the elk on Turner's Ranch uh, migrate off into the national forests or onto other ranches, they can be hunted by people who have more access than on Turner's. Uh, and, and the list goes on. These are, these are resources that are free to migrate, and, uh, and, and the results are that the public benefits from them uh, as much or perhaps even more than the private owner. And Terry, is it only the big titans of industry who are envirepreneurs? Are there smaller players too? We shouldn't neglect the small rancher who does much the same. Uh, I've just done a case study on a, a ranch in the Madison River Valley here in Montana, Anybody who fly fishes here's Madison River. They know right where it is. They fish that river. It's one of the best trout streams in the United States, perhaps the world. And there's a, a ranch there called the Granger Ranch that has has invested huge amounts of private money, gotten some public money, and partnered with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and other agencies to 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 rearrange its grazing techniques. It's still a working cattle ranch, making a profit on cattle. But the result is they have tremendous trout uh, streams. Again, limited access to them, but those trout migrate in and out to the Madison River all the time. Better water quality, better flows, uh, bird habitat, and the list goes on. So even the private small rancher is uh, doing a great service for the public in, 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 in a conservation way. Now, great work on that, Alex. A takeaway from you uh, on that, that really good report. It just throws off a lot of the conventions that people think about the environment and that free markets have a role to play and often can do better than the government. And, you know, and and we're going to close out here with this ideas man, Teddy Roosevelt, filled with contradictions. Republicans loved some things about him. I'm sure Democrats love some things about him. A, A guy who loved the military, loved sports, was a city man, but yet a country man. But I think the other thing he's so well known for is, well, his ability to see a problem with trusts and try and bust him up. We're going to hear right now from Teddy Roosevelt himself. The men who represent that sinister alliance between crooked politics and crooked business, which has done more than anything else for the corruption of American life, 
Teddy Roosevelt, always in the end, a paradox, a man of courage, in the end, a man only America could produce. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can hear and see all of this on ouramericannetwork.org. Much more to come.